Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Nutrition Lifestyles with Kim and Joanne. I'm Joanne. And I'm Kim. Today, we have with us Dr. Sanda Matar, DPM, who was born in Columbus, Ohio, to parents from Liberia, West Africa. Dr. Tar graduated from Shiloh High School in Snellville, Georgia. She moved to New York City immediately after and graduated from the New York Institute of Technology with a Bachelor's of Science in Life Sciences. In 2013, she matriculated at Kent State University College of Podiatric Medicine and graduated in 2017 with her Doctorate of Podiatric Medicine degree. Dr. Tar recently completed a three-year residency in podiatric medicine and surgery at University Hospitals in Richmond Heights, Ohio. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Tar. We are so happy to have you. Thank you for having me. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and your profession as a podiatrist? Well, hello, everyone. My name is Sanda Matar. I am a podiatrist uh, currently based in Phoenix, Arizona. A little bit, I guess, about my schooling and background. Undergrad, I did at New York Institute of Technology in New York City. Graduated in 2009 with a bachelor's in life sciences, biology. Podiatric medical school, I did that at uh, Kent State right outside Cleveland, Ohio, and graduated with Doctor of Podiatric Medicine degree in 2017. Residency was a three-year surgical residency at uh, University Hospitals, also in Cleveland, and just graduated last summer in 2020. And right after that, I moved to Phoenix, and now I'm currently in practice here. Graduated during the pandemic. I did. (laughs) (laughs) I did. It was an interesting time, to say the least. I can imagine. What is the difference between a podiatry degree and an MD? So the two, I guess, degrees developed separately. So podiatry was formerly known as, and I always have a hard time pronouncing this word, but chapodiatry. That's what they still call it in the UK. And it was just a foot specialist, you know, eventually that became a doctoral program, but they never Mm. merged with the MDDO schools. It was always separate. And when they were granted doctoral status or when they decided to make the field a doctoral degree, they never really merged. So there's talks about potentially merging the two, but it's been so long. It's been over a hundred years. It's like, how do you realistically do that the people that have dpm degrees how do you grandfather them into yeah it's just a lot of things so everything Mm -hmm. pretty much developed separately and it stayed separate so the difference between i guess a podiatrist and a doctorate podiatric medicine as opposed to a md or do schooling is still four years entrance Mm -hmm. requirements are for the most part the same. You still have to take the MCAT, the big entrance exam to enter podiatry school. You still have to have the same prerequisites. So all of your biology courses, chemistry, all of your chemistries, anatomy, physiology, microbiology. So that doesn't really change. The first two years you're taking, for the most part, similar courses to your MDDO counterpart. So you're doing general anatomy. So you're still Mm -hmm. learning about completely head to toe, all the parts Mm. of the body, different anatomical structures, functions, things like that. Because they always tell us in school that yes, you are a podiatrist, but you're a doctor first. So you have to understand the entire body and the foot and leg is attached to the entire body and everything is connected. Nothing really happens in the vacuum in the human body and definitely when it comes to the lower extremities. So you still have to know everything. (laughs) So first year, you know, you're doing general anatomy, you're doing at least at our school, uh, biochemistry is first year, you're doing genetics, you're doing physiology. Second semester of first year, that's when it starts to specialize a little bit, you do lower extremity anatomy. So the first semester, you don't really cover the lower extremity because the lower extremity, just like the whole body is extremely detailed, they want you obviously to be very good at that. So they break apart 
And second semester, first year, you do lower extremity anatomy. So pretty much learning everything that there is to know from like an anatomical, you know, aspect to the lower leg, pretty much from the hip down. Second year, again, you're kind of still doing the same things. You're doing pharmacology. You're doing pathology, which was actually like by probably my favorite course during my school experience. Pathology to me was always just very interesting. Just all the different things that can go wrong in the body was just kind of reads like a story in a way. I know that sounds weird. Right. But once you kind of <laughs> understand the flow of physiology, having that background, you, you know, put the pathology in there and it just, to me, it made sense once you kind of understand it. Third year is kind of when you really start to specialize. So second year for us, you're in clinic a little bit more and clinic is a podiatry clinic. So anything really lower extremity related, those patients will come to us. The school has several clinics and then there are some rotations that you do, but third year is when you really dive deep. And then that's when the classes really are focused on podiatry and lower extremity things. So whether it's a surgery, whether that's elective surgery, trauma, sports medicine, podopediatrics is one class where we talk about all of the different, not so much diseases, but sometimes diseases, but more so just manifestations of certain issues that can happen in children like club foot, pediatric flat foot, hip dysplasia, you learn that more third year. So third year, you're really, really focusing on your podiatric courses. Fourth year, you're on rotations. And majority of those will be podiatry rotations because you're trying to go through the match process for residency as well. So you're going to different hospitals that have programs, seeing if it's a good fit for you because potentially you will apply to those programs for residency. But some rotations are not podiatry, things that are related to us where we usually work very closely with those specialties like vascular surgery. We usually work in tandem with them very, very closely. So you'll, you do have the opportunity to rotate with them. And then residency, residency first year for me, and I was grateful that my program was very big on, again, us being very well-rounded. So my first mm -hmm. year was, I did very little podiatry, to be honest, my first year. I was in the ER, I was on the medical nice. board. That was probably the longest rotation I had as a first year resident was three months on the medical floor. So that was very interesting because again, the leg obviously is attached to the whole body. So you have to be comfortable seeing patients with congestive heart failure, with COPD, stroke, heart attack, all the things that pretty much come into the ER and they end up getting admitted. Or if they're directly admitted to the floor, you're managing all of that, which was scary in the beginning, but exciting. Yeah, psych was also very interesting. <laughs> so you're doing a little bit of everything. Second and third year, that's when for us, we were more in the OR, more in the clinic, doing for the most part, strictly podiatry related things and really working like in our specialty. So yeah, I know that was very long winded, but that <laughs> is the difference between, I guess, my experience of training as a podiatrist, as opposed to the other the side of the coin, MDDO physicians, what they go through. Gotcha. You know, I'm very happy that you gave us that explanation because mm -hmm. recently I started watching that show. My feet are killing yeah, me. My feet are killing me yes. Yo, that show. I'm just <laughs> like, <laughs> what is going on? So, you know, I think in your explanation, when you stated that in the first year, you know, you just get an overview of what's going on in the body. I feel like people do not realize how important the feet are. So that no. leads us to the next question. How does our health impact our feet? Or maybe I should even say it backwards. How does our feet impact our health? Hey guys, Kim here. I wanted to take a quick sack and introduce you guys to JoJo's guilt-free chocolate. So like if you hear like crumpling in the background, I actually have the chocolate package here with me because hey, that's what I'm snacking on at this time. But I'll be honest with y'all, when JoJo's originally reached out with their guilt-free chocolate that had zero grams of sugar, I was like, oh, I wonder how this tastes. But I promise you, it did not disappoint. 
I got the Goes Hawaiian flavor that has like the coconut shreds and the sea salt and the macadamia nuts. And this low sugar chocolate snack actually did satisfy my sugar cravings. And that's important for me because I'm a person that works a lot with individuals that have diabetes. And I don't believe that everything should taste like cardboard and sadness. Like if you're having a sugar craving, there are healthier options out there. And JoJo's actually did it for me. So one bar of the chocolate, which is a pretty big piece in my opinion, has 14 grams of total carbohydrates and three grams of net carbs. So in other words, it can fit into any healthy diet or nutrition plan. So what Joanne and I did, we actually decided after taste trialing, of course, to team up with JoJo's to give you guys some discounts. So if you go on the jojoschocolate.com websites, there's a variety, there's an assortment of different flavors that you can choose from. So whatever you choose to order, at checkout, use the coupon code NutritionLifestyles10 for 10% off of your next purchase. So again, at checkout, use the coupon code NutritionLifestyles10 to get 10% off of your next order at JoJo's Chocolate. And trust me, it doesn't disappoint. I think just most commonly, if you're having a lot of pain, in your feet, that's going to throw off your gait because mm. naturally what people try to do is if they're hurting, they're going to try and not use that part of their body less. So that's if it's true. your foot, your ankle, your leg, you will compensate even without you realizing that you do it. And you mm. put more weight, more stress on the leg that isn't bothering you. But that throws off Let's say if you're having pain in your toes or the forefoot, we call it, that can throw off your ankle, that can cause knee issues, that can cause hip and back because, again, everything's related. So one of the classes that we take is biomechanics, and mm -hmm. we learn about compensations of different foot types different injuries that can happen and how the muscles in your lower extremity will compensate for those changes. And again, you don't realize that you're doing it, but your body will do it to correct for that change in motion or change in gait. And that can cause long-term issues. That can cause, really arthritis is a big one. Chronic pain is another one. If really any type of foot issues aren't addressed and aren't addressed early enough. I've seen people, flat foot is a good example of that. People that had maybe flat feet as a child, because flat feet a lot of times are genetic, unfortunately. And if it's not dealt with in childhood and they grow into adults with flat feet, and at that point, usually their feet are fixed in that position, meaning they have so much arthritis, their foot isn't really flexible. You can't get their foot out of that type of flat shape that they have. And the amount of just extreme pain, chronic pain, because again, that's not the natural shape of the foot. You have different tendons, different muscles that will start to lengthen, start to weaken. You have traction on different nerves that aren't supposed to have that type of force on them. So that will cause pain. Just the arthritis and flat feet in general, the arthritis and different joints in your midfoot and your ankle. I mean, it's extremely debilitating. Like people really, their lives will be changed. It's hard for them to work. It's almost impossible because if you have a job that requires you to stand for eight hours a day, but you literally can't because the amount of just intense pain that you're in, constant pain, it's just, it's really sad to see. Wow. You know, I'm happy that you said that because my brother was in the military and in the military, like they said that his arch collapsed. And so like now he's always complaining of back pain. So now that you're you're linking like the whole body to me, like I have to tell him like you need to go see a podiatrist because it's your feet. Yes, exactly. And it can cause a lot of long term issues like flat feet. You know, people always talk about it, but it's one of actually I think probably the most debilitating things a person can go through. So wow. it's, it's just my heart breaks when I see those adult patients come in and their foot is completely fixed and you try and, you know, flex their ankle and rotate their foot inward. It can't even do that because there's so much arthritis. They're literally just frozen in that position. 
the calluses that come along with that. It's just, it's a lot of different things. Yeah. So your feet are very important, really how, Mm -hmm. you know, the rest of your body will react. So a collapsed arch is the same thing as flat foot. Yes, for the most part. But there's two types of flat feet. There's flexible and rigid. And usually children will have more of a flexible flat foot. Not all of the time, but more often than not, they're more flexible just because they're younger. Because I have one. I have a flat foot. My left foot is flat. And I believe it's been that way since I was young. And, you know, I think I know what caused it. I remember having like a pocket full a fluid on the side of my foot and I had to go in and get it removed. I don't think I told my parents early enough. I just saw it growing and I was like, <laughs> I didn't tell them. I don't even think we had health insurance. And I was like, uh, what are we going to, what's going to happen? So I didn't tell them. And then my dad saw it. He's like, what is this? And then I don't know if that's what caused it, but just my left foot. But I've been very functional with it. Like I'm very athletic. I work out. I do a lot of obstacle course type stuff. And that's good. I can't reverse it, can I? You can't reverse it once you're in adulthood. Once you're an adult, it's harder. Sometimes, I mean, I feel like flexible flat foot is, for the most part, it's very difficult, if not impossible to reverse, especially as an adult without surgery. There are ways that you can kind of protect your foot to keep it from progressing more or keep it progressing to the point where you have, you know, arthritis and things like that, chronic pain. But usually we do that in adults with just orthotics, strengthening the tendons too, because there's one big tendon that goes along the inside of your foot, the posterior tibialis tendon. Once that starts to kind of break down, the arch will collapse and your foot will collapse. So that's kind of one of the signs that we use if you don't have a lot of strength in that tendon. And that could be due to multiple different issues. Sometimes, again, it's genetic. Sometimes it's injury that has happened to it. A lot of things can cause that. Then you start to see the foot collapse. So we just try and cut, if we can, capture it at a point to where it is still flexible and to the point where you won't need a big reconstructive surgery down the line, because that's a very hard surgery to go through once you get to that point. Okay, I got you. So we were talking about TV shows a few minutes ago, and I'm trying to remember the one that my husband and I have been watching like last year. And I feel like it's new. It looks like a Dr. Pimple Popper type of show. And I can't remember. I don't think it's the one Kim was talking about. But, you know, these people, they come in the office and things are just like crazy extreme. And we always look at each other. We're like, how do you let it get to that I know Toe is another one. I'm looking right now. I was looking to see if I could find it. It's a black female doctor. She's the one that is the lead on it. And I can't just, I can't remember what it is called, but you see it the same thing in all these different shows that focus on the feet and people come in and they're getting their toes clipped or shaved. And, but things are just like extreme. And some people are, they're not old where you're like, okay, they're debilitated. Maybe they can't reach it. So they have to get it professionally done. These, some of these people are young. Yeah. So I'm like, how does it get to this level? So can you go into like the common foot related complications that people may see, like diabetic complications, nerve injuries, muscle tendon injuries, and also How do people let it get to this extreme? Like, what's going on there? (laughs) (laughs) So probably the most common patients that I don't want to speak for all podiatrists because everybody's practice is different and kind of like what they will center their practice around which patient population. But a lot of patients there or a lot of podiatrists, rather, they see a lot of diabetic patients. And that makes up really the bulk of their practice just because diabetes causes so many changes to the feet and legs. And obviously with diabetes and other disease states, you have higher risk of wounds, ulcers that are chronic that can take weeks, months, even years to heal on some people. And unfortunately, amputation. And once you kind of get to that point, it's hospitalization, IV antibiotics, surgery, and sometimes death. You know, I've had at least in residencies, some patients actually die because their infection was so bad. Uh, Gangrene, they end up septic. 
bacteria in their blood. And then it's just all downhill from there, you know. Definitely had a patients that were on the brink where we didn't know if they were going to make it or not because they had gangrene or what's normally called flesh eating bacteria, necrotizing fasciitis. So you'll fasciitis, see that in diabetics right. for sure, especially with gas gangrene or necrotizing fasciitis. It forms a bacteria forms gas in the tissues and that's why it's so destructive. And they usually will move, especially with necrotizing fasciitis, along fascial planes. So fascia is just kind of like a connective tissue plane in your body. And it kind of helps to compartmentalize different parts of whatever body that you're talking about or whatever part of the body that you're talking about. Because it moves along those planes, it's very quick reacting and very destructive. So maybe the person has a wound on their foot that isn't that big, but when you get in the OR and you're probing around, you see that the probe goes past their ankle or back up their leg, or you you can see the gas on the x-ray. When it's bad, that's when you know, and you're like, oh. So, you know, a lot of aggressive surgery to really just, and treatment for that is IV antibiotics, supportive therapy, and surgery, just getting in there, opening up whatever is infected and just allowing that to drain and you hope with you know the antibiotics for sure and then just making sure that they're staying alive that their blood pressure is good everything is in check that their body can clear it but a lot of times the infection and the damage is so far gone it's better to just take off the limb because if you're piecemealing and saying oh let's wait and see the patient is going downhill, they're septic, they're, you know, losing, it's just a lot. So a lot of times really to save their life is just better to take off the limb at the level or of infection or above wherever, you know, they're going to heal it. So yeah, diabetes is a big one in your private office or in that or in your practice rather. Diabetes can affect the feet by causing extreme dryness just because diabetes does affect what we call the peripheral nerves. So the nerves in your feet usually will happen first or do happen first. Over time, if that damage becomes severe, people will get it in their hands, which is you know that their diabetes is poorly uncontrolled and they will experience muscle wasting also in their hands. It's hard for them to just grip, you know, a cup of water because they don't have that muscle tone because those muscles are no longer receiving those nerve signals. So they just kind of atrophy, they shrink, which is really sad. The same thing happens in your feet, definitely. But in your feet, you'll see it first before you ever see it in their hands. So extreme dryness, calluses, changes to their nails, but really a lot of things can cause that. Fungus is one, which a lot of times you'll see with diabetics just because their immune function is decreased just by the, you know, the disease state of being diabetic. So they'll tend to get a lot more fungal infections. People with chronic kidney disease, you'll see changes in their nails. So that's why you see, especially on those shows, sometimes a lot of those people you know, probably do have some sort of underlying health condition. And that's why their nails look the way that they do. I guess why people don't take action earlier. I feel like sometimes people, unfortunately, are in denial about what they're going through. Sometimes people don't think it's as bad as what it is. And I think sometimes, honestly, people are just ashamed, you know, they're ashamed that their foot has changed. You know, I've seen 30-year-olds with feet like that. But again, usually the 30-year-olds that I see, they're usually are pretty sick. They're more than likely diabetic when their feet are starting to look like that. So I feel like it's a couple of different issues. Why embarrassment, shame, or just not really realizing kind of their health in that current state. And that's why those things just kind of snowball and then you see them you know a couple years after all those things have started and they're in the condition that they're in yeah i mean that makes sense there could be a lot of different factors going on it's just as you're watching it you're like mouth wide open you're like what, what? The, and how did right how did that happen can that you know so or how do you wear shoes and you wonder how this person functions in the day-to-day but yeah, there could be a lot of different factors. Exactly. 
So, you know, while you were speaking and you were talking about, you know, people being in denial and, you know, having to take off the limb, I remember that there's this one guy in the hospital. He kept coming in. He had diabetes. He had gangrene of the toe, didn't want the toe to be amputated. Then it spread to the forefoot. Then it spread to the ankle. Then it spread to the knee. And then he was like, all right, take it off. And you had to like, he got an above the knee amputation. And I'm just like... You could have just chopped off the toe. Right. But, you know, that's where the denial is, how it plays with our minds and affects our health. But I wanted to ask, so like, let's say we're talking about preventative care, because you spoke about, you know, there's some 30 year olds that, you know, may have some chronic conditions. But how can we tell for people that are healthy and don't have diabetes? I'm specifically talking about stiletto wearing females there's nothing wrong with our stilettos now i'm I'm just saying i can't wear them because i have an old soccer ankle injury that never healed but how can we tell that something is wrong with our feet in the first place and like when to seek help instead of having like that lobster foot that i see on the television (laughs) so i think for me two big things to look for in your feet change wise or really new pain and new pain that doesn't go away for me in a reasonable amount of time and pain that well actually I don't want to say that too because sometimes you can get hurt like for example a soccer injury and it doesn't heal properly or it doesn't heal in the way that you would expect it to maybe your you know course of you know healing is different than what you would expect it to be then yeah definitely go in and see a podiatrist I feel like if you're seeing any new changes in your feet If you're seeing, you know, contraction of your toes, if you're seeing different bumps and just things that weren't there previously, definitely go see. I think, you know, caveat to skin cancer, because you can get skin cancer on your feet and your legs. If you're noticing any moles that are all of a sudden new, and especially if that mole is changing or growing in size, changing in color, definitely go see your podiatrist about that. If it's something that has been the same and it's always looked like that and it's been years, then that's one thing. But if it's something that's constantly changing, shifting, definitely go see. I think it's better to be safe than sorry for sure. So I think for me, like if you're just kind of like a normal healthy person and you're noticing like these little things, then I think it doesn't hurt to go in and see somebody. So whether it's pain, whether it's just changes in your skin or just different shapes that your foot is taking on, then I think it's worth your while to go in. Gotcha. So listen, I think the pandemic has saved my foot or my feet, (laughs) plural, because I haven't really been in stilettos since... I was pregnant 2019, 2020 pandemic. So it's been a while since I've been wearing it. (laughs) (laughs) So for people like me who love wearing five inch heels, it wasn't every day. I like to wear them when I have my husband next to me so I can have something to hold on to just in case I wobble, wobble, fall. But like every day I was wearing flats when I was in a clinical setting. But for people like me who love wearing five inch heels, How long is too long to wear them? How do you know if like red bottoms, I don't own any, but people who do own them tell me that. I heard they're they're painful. They're painful. They don't feel good. Yeah. So how long is too long to wear high heels? And I guess what is considered high in podiatry? Like, do you guys have a recommendation? Are are y'all recommending kitten heels? (laughs) Is that the recommendation y'all making? (laughs) So one of my classes, I think it was second year, and that's when we were learning about shoe design and how shoes were made and all the different parts of the shoe. It was actually like very interesting because I didn't know before that class that there was so much thought that went into shoes that every single part of the shoe has a different name and it can be manipulated, all that type of stuff. So the professor was talking about heels and they said really to prevent any type of biomechanical changes to how you walk, they didn't really recommend anything above like a two inch heel. And all the girls were looking at each other like, what? What? Right? I'm I'm too young for that. I'm not there yet. 
And my school is a big school. So our class was probably like at that time, 110, 120 Mm. people. So we're all sitting in the lecture hall. And when she said that, (laughs) all the girls were looking at each other like, what? And my class was like 50% women, if not more. So that's what the literature states. I don't follow that personally. All the heels that I have that I own are, I feel like at least three inches, if not more. I don't wear them for too long, though. I probably will wear them like, you know, prior to COVID when we were out and about doing things like an evening, you know, like you're going out to dinner, you're going someplace. So that maybe is four-ish hours on average. But also for me, I guess over time, when I was younger in college, I used to wear heels a lot. Like I could probably wear them for eight plus hours. But I've noticed that as I've gotten older, my body is less tolerant of that because I start to get calf pain and back pain and hip pain. So I probably, you know, once everything kind of opens up again, I think everyone's kind of tolerance to that is different. But I say, you know, One tip that I heard, which I do agree with, is having a pair of flats with you. So probably exactly not going the total time in heels. Like if you're driving someplace or you have to walk to someplace, like bring a pair of flats. I know they have uh, different companies that have flats that are foldable and you can put them in your purse. I have a few of those. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So you can do a pair of those. And that's what I started doing was that if I was driving someplace, like driving to dinner or a concert, I would have flats on. And then when I got to like my destination, I would put on my actual shoes. Once I, you know, was done doing what I was doing, I got back in the car, I would put on my flats. So that is a tip that I think helps so that you're not in heels for as long of a time, just to kind of give, you know, your joints a break and everything. So I feel like, you know, a couple of hours is fine, like maybe four-ish, anything over that. And then I think it also depends on like the frequency too, right? So I know some jobs require women to wear heels like every day. So that is a very different conversation than someone that is just wearing them just to go out to dinner or go to a concert or, you know. Can you tell people how they can tell if the shoes they're wearing are too small? Because I feel like people may be squeezing their feet into things that they shouldn't be into. I know like they say like, so I've had, you know, all these kids and my feet do swell up when I'm pregnant, but I'm blessed. Thank the Lord. I've been able to get back to my shoe sizes. I haven't had much problems with that postpartum. But I know that some people, they may have outgrown the size that they were maybe 10, 20 years ago, and they still think they're a size seven and a half, but you're not, <laughs> you're an eight and a half now. So how can you tell? And what are the like negative effects to that? I'm sure it could be damaging, right? Yes, for sure. So how can you tell? And that actually was something I went through. So my second year in residency, I developed plantar fasciitis, which is heel pain. Your plantar fascia is a big ligament that spans the bottom of your foot. And for a lot of different reasons, shoe fit is one of them. That insertion where the plantar fascia inserts on your heel can become very inflamed. And it's painful to walk, to stand. So at that time, I was working probably... 12 hours a day on average between like clinic and the hospital and surgery and everything. And most of that time I'm standing and I would notice at the end of the day, I would be limping like to my car. I would like get to my apartment and I just like the floor couldn't even touch my feet. Like that's how painful it was. Like I would just dangle my feet off of the couch. So I went and got new shoes because I thought I needed new shoes. The shoes I had were old. I went to a store and the person there that was working measured me And I was wearing a size that was a size and a half too small because I was wearing the size that I wore in high school because I had never been fitted past like age 14, you know? Now at that point I was, what, 30, 31? So, you know, 15 plus years had gone by and I never bothered to get fitted again. (laughs) And my feet had grown. So I feel like that is rule number one is if you haven't been fitted in a while and especially if you haven't been fitted you know, past, you know, like puberty age or teenage years, definitely go get fitted because you will be surprised. I was shocked when he said my feet were a size and a half bigger than what I initially thought they were. 
So as soon as I got shoes that actually fit my foot, the plantar fasciitis went away. Like it within a couple wow. of, yeah, probably a week, like I had no more heel pain and I didn't have to do injections. You know, I still stretched. I practiced yoga and everything. So I still stretched, but you know, no injections or anything. It literally went away by just wearing proper shoes. So I feel like I would recommend that to all women. Definitely go get fitted because you might be surprised at what you think it is and what it actually is, like what it currently is. Definitely don't try and squeeze your feet into smaller shoes because I know I used to be guilty of that in college. Like if you mm-hmm. see a cute pair of shoes, especially yeah. heels. <laughs> I know that's that right. Cheap price. And you're like, I'm going to get these shoes. I don't care if it's a size smaller. <laughs> yes. If it's a cheap price or if it's, you know, a cute design that isn't in your actual size, you try and squeeze your feet into it. And I remember those were the times that I was miserable going out and you're mm. wearing a size that is too small. It's torture. And that could cause a lot of issues. Plantar fasciitis is one. You can cause a nail damage. So you get bleeding underneath the nail. The nail sometimes can loosen if you have too much bleeding. I'm actually dealing with that now because my hiking shoes from before that period when I discovered I was wearing a size that was too small for me were too Mm -hmm. small. Mm. And hiking shoes typically run small anyway. And then on top of that, I was wearing a size that was too small. So my foot was just constantly knocking against the shoe. And now I have kind of like bleeding underneath my first nail. It's old blood. So it's not, you know, active, but that Mm -hmm, takes mm -hmm. time to grow out. You know, thankfully I'm healthy and all of that. So it's moving quickly, but that nail will probably be another four or five months until that, you know, old blood is completely grown out. A lot of times too, that can cause like permanent changes to your nail your nail looks like it has a fungal infection. So it gets thick and crumbly and different colors, even though there's no fungus. A lot of times when you cause damage to the cells, the nail matrix or the nail bed rather through just regular shoes, like for example, runners, if you look at a runner's foot, usually all their nails are messed up. And that's because of that constant trauma, just pounding against their shoes, against their shoes every single day. That can cause a lot of issues too hammer toes, corns, bunions, just kind of the whole gamut, tendon issues, pinched nerves. So there's a lot of issues with wearing shoes that are too small for you. You know, the same thing that happened to you happened to me and I'm still getting over it myself. And I think it's because, so I guess your exercise shoes are supposed to be, or your hiking shoes, like you said, they're supposed to be a size bigger. Yeah. Because that allows for swelling and all that. So I I wore the wrong shoes hiking and it just damaged that nail. It fell off. It started to grow back. It, it's a whole debacle. And I'm like, thank God we don't got to go anywhere. And I don't have to have like a bandaid over this big toe because there's a nail missing or something. But it's growing back. But now I'm realizing, okay, you need to get some size bigger hiking shoe. And as opposed to your exercising shoes, even your exercising shoes should be a size bigger, no? Yeah, at least like a half size for sure. Just because also to your foot will kind of slide in that shoe a little bit. So you want to give it room to where it's not as traumatic. You know, the tips of your toes, your nails hitting against the inside of your shoe. So I actually went to a running store. I think it was sometime last year because I was like, yo, I need new hiking shoes. Because the one I had again caused my nail to get that bleeding under it. And I got... Because I'm a size, they said probably about a 10 on average. I got a 10 and a half for hiking shoes. And that works a lot better. I haven't noticed any issues with that. Okay. So so when you were speaking, I was remembering my grandmother would tell me stories. I don't know what it is. Maybe, maybe it's a Jamaican thing. But every single person in my family thinks that they're like a size seven. <laughs> <laughs> they do. So, you know, looking at my grandmother's feet, when I was seeing her before the pandemic, like her feet look like her toes look like, you know, like clawed and like fungus looking. So she wouldn't tell me why her toes look like that. So I spoke to her sister and my grand aunt was like, oh, you didn't know your grandma was a go-go girl. Oh, oh my God. So like she would wear, she would wear like these tiny shoes and like go dancing when she was like in her twenties. So like when I look at her toes now, like I see fungus, right? But it's not a fungus. So like, how can you tell the difference between 
a toe that's has fungus and a toe that has like a foot injury from wearing all these ill-fitting shoes all these years. So really the best way to tell, I tell patients this all the time because a lot of times they'll come to me and say, oh, my nail looks strange. And I think it's fungus because that's the first thing that comes to everybody's mind. And I have to explain to them, there's a lot of reasons why your nails could look like that. And nails, for the most part, will, for yeah, mostly look the same, whether it's fungus, whether it's nail damage, whether it's psoriasis is another one, a lot of different things. The best way is a nail biopsy. So it's not painful. It's just we trim the nail and send it to a lab and see if fungus grows. And that mm, is okay. the confirmation to whether it's nail fungus or if it's something else. So I always tell patients that too, don't let anyone put you on medication for Mm -hmm. nail fungus because Mm -hmm. there is medication for it without getting that biopsy. Don't let anyone, I know now nail lasers are becoming more popular. I've never heard of them. What are they? So it's a laser that supposedly is supposed to kill the nail fungus within the nail. But the issue is, is that when someone has nail fungus, you're seeing the end effects of the nail being infected. The nail fungus actually lives in the root of the nail, the nail matrix, which is, you can't see that with the naked eye. You would have to cut open the toe and kind of fillet it and see like those cells there. That's where the fungus truly lives. And you're just kind of seeing the after effects of that. So the laser... I won't say that it can't reach the matrix, but the science is kind of iffy as to if it can. And also laser treatments aren't covered by insurance because a lot of them aren't FDA approved. So you're paying out of pocket. And a lot Mm -hmm. of times a doctor will tell you, oh, come like once a month. I don't really know what the interval is because it's not something that I would recommend to patients Mm -hmm. just because there's not a lot of evidence behind it. And then also because it's not covered by insurance. So you have these people that pay hundreds, if not thousands of dollars, because they go for maybe eight rounds, 10 rounds, 12 rounds of this laser and it doesn't work. And then you get a nail biopsy and it's not even fungus. So (laughs) I always tell patients that like, make sure whoever you go to gets a biopsy before they talk about medication, before they talk about laser. And I'm not so much anti-laser, but I'm always a big advocate of do what works first, do what's proven. If you want to treat the fungus and this actual fungus. So if you're okay with taking medicine by mouth, then try that first. If you're okay, because there's some topical medicines you can take, they don't work as well because again, you're not really getting to like the source of infection, but it works for some people. If you want to try that, do that before you go to spending thousands of dollars out of pocket for something that might not work. So yeah, so that's the best way to know whether it's fungus or not is just getting a biopsy. Gotcha. So there's no way to tell by the naked eye? No, not really. No. That's smart. That's why I'm gonna tell my grandma that because she swears up and down she has some fungus. And I'm like, you've had this since I was born. Like, there's no changes. You know, she still thinks she's How a size seven. Oh, girl, my grandma is going to be 87 this year. Oh, wow. <laughs> and she's still stepping strong, jogging everything. Aww. Okay, now. <laughs> so since we're talking about I guess, new technology that's out there. This is the world of DIY and you Mm -hmm. see stuff all the time on social media. You see ads being advertised to you to rectify whatever may be going on. And I've seen this ad for, I don't even know the correct terminology for it, but it's like if the foot is inverted or the toe, the big toe is inverted towards the other toes. And then there's like a bone popping out and they're like, purchase this device. And they show you the, like the one, two, three step of it, like correcting. Mm -hmm. How dangerous are those devices? Do they actually work? Should people DIY? (laughs) (laughs) So they don't actually work in the sense of that splint won't bring your toe over permanently. So Mm -hmm. that bump that you see, you know, just south of your big toe is a bunion. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. what you're actually seeing in that bump is the joint dislocated. 
So the head of the mm. bone is completely swung one way. And then you have the toe, what you recognize as the toe is swung towards the toes. So that right. joint is, yeah, completely dislocated. So there's no way to correct for that outside of surgery. Mm. And usually surgery, what that entails is us, you know, making an incision across your toe or that part of your foot, shaving down that bump that you see on the outside breaking that bone and then shifting everything over so that you have kind of like wow. a nice line almost and you have a mm-hmm, nice mm-hmm. angle between your first and second toe. There are a lot of different ways to do bunion surgery, but that's probably the most common way. So the splint won't get rid of that bump. The most it will do is because when some people do have bunions, they do have a lot of pain and the splint could help with pain just because you're helping to kind of bring that toe over to a normal position. But as you know, will the splint get rid of the bump? No. Gotcha. I figured that it couldn't be that easy (laughs) as we see see the social media ads given us. So basically, if somebody were to use that device, it will most likely go back towards, okay, good, good information. So I wanted to know, Dr. Tar, like how overrated are like shoe brands? Like all the nurses that I work with, they wear dance skins and then Mm. there's Dr. Scholl's and then like there's this new sneaker that they have. It looks like it's an Asus, but it's not an Asus. I mean, is it really worth it? Because like they're trying to encourage me to buy like these $140 dance skins. (laughs) And I'm like, is is it worth the money? So I feel like everybody's foot type is different. Like there are certain hallmarks that like we as podiatrists will consider a good shoe. So usually a good shoe is what we consider something that can't fold over on itself. Like I'll show y'all for a second, even though the people can't see it, but we'll do it for completeness sake. So I got Mm -hmm. these shoes like a couple weeks ago, Asics. These are one uh of my favorite brands and you Mm -hmm. can't, like it bends at the foot, like at the toe, but it doesn't bend in the middle. Like no matter how hard I do it, it won't bend. Yeah. So that is what we consider a good shoe. It's sturdy, but yet has like a little bit of flexibility at the forefoot, but it doesn't completely collapse over. So that will kind of help to keep your foot in a normal alignment. So some brands, I mean, I do like, like, you know, I'm not sponsored by any of these people, but I just like (laughs) their shoes. Neither are we. Asics is one. Brooks is another one. My hiking shoes are from Brooks and those are honestly the best hiking shoes that I've owned. And those are super Mm -hmm. rigid, like super rigid, but usually hiking shoes Mm -hmm. are, but Brooks also has like some other features of their shoes that I like. New Balance is what I've worn before, especially when I was in residency. That's a good brand too. Dance goes I wore when I was in school. And honestly, those were probably some of the most painful shoes that I've ever worn. Like, really? So painful. Like, wow. I tripped multiple times in clinic because those are like the slide-on <laughs> ones. Yeah. And my, yeah. Foot, my foot is very narrow. So I think uh-huh. that in combination with the height, I just didn't feel sturdy. And then the hallways are like linoleum. So I've slipped a couple times. My foot has come out of the shoe. I remember my arch at the end of the day was just so exhausted, like pain in the middle of my Mm. arch. So I know a lot of people like dance goals. And if they work for you, great. For me personally, I hated them. Like I straight up hated Mm -hmm. them. I will never buy Mm -hmm. them again. So I think, yeah, there are certain shoes that are constructed better than others for sure. But I think also it's just good to kind of find what works for you because what works for me won't necessarily work for you. Again, everybody, at least that I know in healthcare, a lot of people love dance clothes. I hated them. My feet just did not appreciate them. So I feel you. I feel you. And also, you know, something else that I wanted to point out too to the audience. I know, you know, you showed us the demonstration that your your shoes don't fold. I know like in the clinical setting, a lot of people wear flats. That's and me. they think, oh, you ballerina know, ballerina slippers, ballerina slippers. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I remember one of my patients, she was a podiatrist and she looked at my feet mm. and she looked at the ballerina slippers I had on. This was like 
maybe three years ago and she was like you got any sneakers in your office (laughs) and I'm just like no why and she was like oh you may want to reconsider and I'm like lady you laid up in the hospital bed but thank you I will take that into consideration because she was right my arch was killing me in those ballerina flats so I just switched to wear sneakers with my slacks to work. It's me and my sneakers. Like, say something, please. Please say something about my sneakers. Exactly. <laughs> That's all I wore. Because when you were saying, like, they shouldn't bend, I'm like, ballerina slippers, you can fold them <laughs> things. Right. <laughs> they definitely are foldable. They definitely are foldable. And I used to live in ballerina slippers, like, when I was in school, especially, or even like that first probably part of like my clinical experience when I was in school, I would wear ballerina mm-hmm. flats all the time, but my feet mm-hmm. were, I realized later on, oh my God, my feet are so exhausted at the end of the day. Right. Like my arches mm-hmm. hurt, like it's just uncomfortable. And then I think it was probably around residency because then we had to wear scrubs all the time. We weren't really wearing like dress clothes anymore. So I'm like, okay, well, I got to wear sneakers and sneakers are by far just a world of difference. So I feel like I will probably Mm -hmm. always be a sneaker person when it comes to work. Mm -hmm. Like I wear ballerina flats sometimes like on the weekend but again I kind of treat them like how I treat heels. Like I don't wear them for Mm -hmm. too long. I just, you know... Like prior to Corona, if you're going out somewhere, yeah, you put them on, but I try not to be in them for too long. Yeah, I guess that's what I need to do. I end up throwing them away a lot of the times because you're in them for eight hours. So they end up being worn out and whatnot compared to something that that's not bendable and has more of a soul to it. So Dr. Tar, thank you so much for being here today and giving us more information about our feet and how to take care of them. Cause I know a lot of us, including myself, aside from a pedicure, I guess, I don't think about all like the health aspects and all that goes into taking care of your feet. So right, thank you right. for all of that information. If people are wanting to connect with you, how and where do they find you? So I am on, I'm really the most active on Instagram, Dr. Okay. Tar. I do have a TikTok, but I don't really use it. And Twitter is kind of the same. (laughs) Uh, Dr. Tar as well. And then I do have a website that's currently in construction. I'm hoping by like springtime, it'll be up and running. And that's drtar.com. Nice. And that's Tar with two T's. T-A-R-R, correct? T-A-R-R, yes. All right. Well, everyone, thank you so much for listening to this episode on your foot health. If you have any questions, please do not hesitate to reach out to Dr. Tar. And remember to tell a friend to tell their friends about this podcast episode. Until next week. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.